If you're new with us, we do expository preaching. And that concept may not mean much to you now, but once you have a constant diet of it, you will not be able to live without it. Expository preaching is where the vibe of the text is the vibe of the sermon. We submit ourselves to the author's intent. Uh, the words you see on this preaching table, sola scriptura, was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. Scripture alone. And it wasn't just their battle cry. It's our battle cry. We live it every Sunday by exegeting to you God's word. We preach through entire books of the Bible here. Because it forces us to cover subjects that we wouldn't choose to address in a million years. Uh, our sermons are typically uh, lighthearted, but not lightweight. We will often snorkel in the shallow waters and then quickly dive down to 10,000 feet. Uh, we do this on purpose. We don't want you to remain shallow in your walk with Christ. We want you to go deep. We want you to be able to sing with Bradley Cooper and <laughs> Lady Gaga. We are far from the shallow now. And that doesn't happen by chance. It happens by work. When you come on Sunday, come to do work. Work in the text. Come with an open Bible, paper, and pen. Uh, that may be a little too old school for you. Maybe I should say, come, come prepare to uh, turn on your Bible. Uh, co come with a mind ready to think. Come to dive deep. Now, in preaching, we go from shallow to deep, and, but we also go from deep to shallow because we want to avoid becoming a seminary class. Jesus said, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes. We do intentionally put things high in the tree, but they shouldn't always be there. John Owen, a Puritan who is grossly underread, said, in the divine scriptures, there are shallows, and there are deeps, shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. The Bible has two lips, the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you read the Bible, you read words from the lips of God. Let's keep that in mind. Now let's orient ourselves to the text. Uh, we, we've been walking verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And this is our 12th exposition in the book. On Friday, I was listening to one of my mentors from a distance, Edmund Clowney. And he was talking to Tim Keller about Ecclesiastes. And he said, I would never, I would never preach verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> he went on to say, I haven't heard anyone do it well. Well, thanks for the vote of confidence, Ed. Uh, so after hearing that, I, I wanted to see what one of my dead mentors thought about preaching verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes, Charles Spurgeon. Turns out old Charlie didn't spend much time in the book of Ecclesiastes either. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask old Spurge why he didn't preach through the book. I think I know where to find him. He's going to be in the smoking section. <laughs> Dude loved a cigar. <laughs> Smoke like a freight train. Another pastor told him one time, don't you think it's a bad testimony for you to be smoking? And legend says the Spurge in that moment lit a cigar, took one long hit, blew it in the pastor's face and said, I'll smoke this cigar to the glory of God. <laughs> Kids, uh, do the opposite of Spurgeon. Uh, don't smoke and preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Now, Solomon, the human author of Ecclesiastes, likes to call himself the preacher. And the preacher is pressing home a very sobering message. Solomon is urging you to pursue wisdom, to go hard after wisdom. That preacher's goal is the same as this preacher's goal. My aim is for you to leave with the desire to cultivate wisdom. You don't just wake up one day wise. It takes work. It takes sweat. At times, it takes hurt. I have no magic formula for you to gain wisdom. I have no hocus-pocus treatment to offer you. I have no shortcuts, no cheat codes, no wisdom pills. All I can say is, go back to your Bible. Go back to your Bible. God communicates his wisdom to us through his word. Paul reminded Timothy, we have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom, not only for salvation, but to equip you for every area of life. Here's why you should saturate your mind and heart with the word of God. Solomon's daddy, David, wrote, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, how does Solomon supply you with wisdom to navigate life? Well, he does it by giving you a wisdom story and a wisdom poem. A wisdom story and a wisdom poem. This text is really just a wisdom grab. Grab all the wisdom you can. Why do you need to grab wisdom? Why do you need this text? Outside of salvation, wisdom is the most common prayer parents pray for their children. My most common prayer is for wisdom. Often the wisdom train has left the station and I'm not on it. Why do people make foolish financial decisions? Why do people walk into marriages that are doomed from the start? Why do people pursue unhealthy friendships instead of God-honoring friendships? Why do people go from engaging in one conflict to another conflict to another? Conflict in the home, conflict at work, conflict with strangers. It's like they're addicted to conflict. Why do people make bad career move after bad career move? Why do people's plans change more than the big hand on the clock? Why do you, why do you keep going back to that spiritually unhealthy relationship? Why do you start habits that you know are eventually going to ruin you? Why do you take more on your schedule than you can handle? Why do you fail to prepare for death when you know it's inevitable? This text sums up all those questions with just one answer. A lack of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom... Wisdom is not a paint-by-numbers kit. You, you've heard of Sherlock Holmes. He walks into a crime scene. You see nothing. He sees clues. He sees how things fit together. Wisdom understands and reads situations. That's the point of this text. Someone cuts you and you bleed wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not getting smarter. It's learning how to live life. 
If I were to say it tritely, I could say wisdom isn't merely book smarts, it's street smarts. Here's a definition. It encompasses all of life, wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to read a situation and make the right gospel-influenced decision. Wisdom is the ability to read a situation and make the right gospel-influenced decision. Biblical wisdom is seeing every decision as an act of worship to God. Which path will help me best to honor God? Now, there are seven wisdom principles in the text that we must uncover and put into practice if we're going to live a life that's worthy of this glorious gospel we have received. Wisdom principle number one. Actually, let, let's just do a quick sidebar first. I'm going to give you these seven wisdom principles. Uh, I'm walking through the wisdom story and the wisdom poem. But I just want to let you know that as we go through the seven principles, you're going to feel a weight. It will not be enjoyable. It will feel too heavy for you, too burdensome for you. You non-Christians may think, if this is what being a Christian is all about, it's not for me. For those of you who are theologically astute, it's going to seem like something is missing. And there will be. Now, I could run on ahead and give you what's missing, but I want you to feel the uncomfortableness of these seven principles. I want you to feel the weight of them. I want you to drudge through them. Because when we arrive to the end, only then are you going to be ready to receive what's missing. So, Kyle, what you're saying is when you get to the end, it's not the end. Right when we think you're finished with the sermon, you're not finished with the sermon. That's exactly what I'm saying. This is the first Sunday in three years. I don't have to preach two services, so I'm just making this one a little longer. Let's uh, sludge through these seven principles. Wisdom principle number one. Living a life of wisdom does not guarantee the world's applause. Solomon gives a little wisdom story. Most commentators have treated this as a parable, but Riken thinks it's a historical event. In his commentary, he actually gave a biblical and historical examples of possible matches. But Solomon says, One day I was observing how wisdom fares on this earth. And I saw something that made me sit up and take notice. Verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it. Building great siege works against it. So we have this little town with only a few people, and it's under attack. A powerful king from a large empire tires of, of picking on people his own size, so he goes after Smallville, Kansas. This little town can't compete. This is going to be a lopsided victory. The king's army has the latest in military technology. They lay siege on the city, starving them out. Blocking food and water from entering. Building siege works to scale the walls. And notice carefully the contrast. A little city, a great king. Small population, a large army. They will make quick work of this little town. Verse 15. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom 
delivered the city. We don't know the poor wise man's name. We don't even know how he delivered the city. Did he use his diplomacy? Did he somehow outmaneuver them? We don't know how he rescued the city, but we do know that he rescued the city by, what's the word? His wisdom. The verse continues, yet no one remembered that poor man. Not only do we not know the man's name, but the small town doesn't even know the man's name. He's a forgotten hero. Instead of marking that day with a parade in his honor, he gets shoved aside. Church, fame is fleeting and people are fickle. The point here is that wisdom is vulnerable. Wisdom will never win the world's applause. Don't expect your non-Christ following friends to praise you for making the wise choice. Don't expect the community to clap for you. Don't expect your job to throw you a parade when you exercise gospel wisdom and it saved them money. In fact, verse 16b, the poor man's wisdom is despised. Not only does wisdom not guarantee popularity, but it will often make you despised. The town didn't just forget the poor wise man, they despised him. They forgot on purpose. There's viciousness behind this Hebrew word. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. In other words, the loudest voice isn't always the wisest voice. Solomon is effectively describing a loud-mouthed leader. He got his way to the top by shouting everyone else down. When are we going to learn that the world likes fools, loud-mouthed kings, spouting foolishness? Wisdom never gains the largest audience. That's why it's heard, according to the text, in quiet. The world doesn't value God's wisdom. They see it as foolishness. They like the arrogant, the proud, the obnoxious. That's why they always give them the mic. The shouting of a foolish person draws more attention in our society than the calm dispensing of wisdom. And I want you to settle in your soul that you don't need their applause. You don't need their thank you. You have Christ, and he is enough. Solomon says in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. He's probably quoting a familiar proverb, like our proverb, uh, brains are better than brawn. You could translate this verse, wisdom is better than warheads. Solomon is not denying the legitimacy of war or the usefulness of weapons. He's simply saying wisdom is superior to weaponry. By the way, is there not a New Testament account very similar to this? Was there not another poor, wise man who was rejected by his hometown after saving a people? Wisdom principle number two. A little folly can ruin a lot of wisdom. Solomon is now leaving the wisdom story, and he's going to give you a wisdom poem. 
you will notice that the structure in your Bible is, is different. Instead of paragraph form, like in the wisdom story, it's laid out in poem form. And it's important for you to know that Hebrew poetry doesn't always rhyme words. It rhymes thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts are the same. We call that synonymous parallelism. Sometimes the thoughts are the exact opposite. We call that antithetical parallelism. The poem consists of a series of loosely connected maxims. The, the poem doesn't really have a flow. It's more like a word vomit of short stories and proverbs and comparisons. Solomon, as he's been in the entire book, is a bit disheveled in his layout. Lots of weird things thrown together. Dead flies, dancing snakes, talking birds. I mean, it'd make a, a great Disney Pixar movie. Let's begin verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, that's the ESV translation. That's what we preach from around here. But the King Jimmy says it even better. It reads, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apoth apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. <laughs> can almost catch a whiff of that putrid mix. In the ancient world, perfume was a highly skilled science. In, in Daniel's generation in Babylon, the, the wise men or the magi were in charge of the best formulas. It, it was royalty during the days of Esther that had merchants scouring the known world for the latest fragrance. These perfumers would soak bark and leaves in heated oil. And the essence of the bark and the leaves would make its way out into the oil. And they would put the oil on their skin and that was the perfume. The problem in the process of all this is that the mixture would attract flies. And the flies would land in the oil and die. Their rotting, decaying bodies would begin to stink. The stench of their carcass turned the perfume rancid. Solomon is using the first line of the poem to draw a comparison. You, you could translate it, as dead flies, so a little folly. It takes only a little bit of something bad to spoil something good. You can hardly see the little dead flies among the massive vat of perfume. But that little bit could spoil a very large, expensive batch. Let's say you go to a restaurant after corporate worship today. You're sitting down, you order some chicken noodle soup. The waiter brings it, you look down into your bowl, and you see a dead roach floating around in it. Now, are you going to say to the waiter, hey, hey, could you, could you just scoop the roach out so I could eat the rest of the bowl of soup? No, no. The roach ruined the entire thing. The little roach contaminated everything. And so it is with folly. A little folly can do a lot of damage. An ounce of folly outweighs a pound of wisdom. Solomon wants you to take note of the devastating effects of a little folly. There's a, a lot more oil than flies, but the flies decay overpowers the sweet smell. When you say you are a follower of Christ, but you act with folly. You undermine the sweet fragrance of the Christian life. 
You, you can make one minor foolish decision. And that little decision outweigh a hundred moments of wisdom. It takes far less to ruin something than to create it. Kidner says it like this. It's easier to make a stink than to create sweetness. You, you know. Yeah, you know what the dead flies are in your Christian life. That thing that doesn't radiate the sweet savor of the gospel. Just a little lie, just a little exaggeration. Those dead flies begin to overpower your wise moments. One rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, one angry outburst spoils everything. With a simple foolish impulse or a sudden lapse of judgment and something beautiful can be irreparably spoiled. Suddenly, your testimony at work has a foul smell to it. Foolishness robs your testimony of the sweet aroma of Christ. Church, you must ruthlessly root out areas of inconsistency. Did we not see this in Solomon's life? He failed to deal with the little inconsistencies, the little flies, and it ruined some other sweet-smelling things in his life. Let's read verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. How many of you are lefties? Would you raise your right hand? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Uh, you lefties aren't going to like this verse. No, you're not. In the Bible, the left hand usually symbolizes ineptness, sinfulness, lostness. Jesus said, I will put the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. Now, in the Bible, the right hand usually symbolizes blessing. The right hand was the hand of blessing all the way back from the days of the patriarchs. Jacob placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. The right hand usually symbolized protection. God holds us by his right hand. Psalm 17, 7. The right hand sometimes symbolizes authority. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Even in our culture, we raise our right hand to make an oath in court. To tell the whole truth. And nothing but the truth. When we make a deal, we shake with our right hand. The right and the left hands, this is not just cultural, the right and the left hands have always been viewed as good and bad. Now this, of course, is not saying that southpaws are evil. It's showing you that wisdom and folly go in different directions. Wise thinking leads to right living and foolish thinking leads to wrong living. Don't miss the key word in the verse. Heart. The wise man goes the right way because his heart leans the right way. The fool goes the wrong way because his heart leans the wrong way. Wisdom and folly are inclinations of the heart. If you don't walk with God, it will show Fools will eventually be distinguished by their actions. 
You can't hide it. It will leak out. The Jerusalem Bible says it like this. A, a wise man's heart leads him aright. A fool's heart leads him astray. Or one scholar said, a fool will follow a path that seems right even when the blacktop gives way to gravel and the gravel gives way to dirt and the dirt gives way to debris. Almost nothing will stop a fool from plunging ahead into peril. The fool is inclined to do what's wrong. Folly is a heart problem. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, which way is my heart taking me? Which way am I leaning? Wisdom principle number three. We're going to speed up on these, don't worry. Wisdom principle number three. You must learn to live wisely under foolish leadership. Verse four. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The Hebrew word here for ruler doesn't limit the context to kings, but could refer to multiple levels of authority. How do you deal with a foolish leader? The foolish leader may be an employer, a spouse, a supervisor, a community leader, a teacher. If the anger of one of these people rises against you, what do you do? When they lash out in anger against you, well, you could, you could match their level of irritation. They came at you with an eight, so you immediately go from a zero to an eight. You match it. They get loud, you get loud. Or you could just say, talk to the hand and walk away. Solomon advises against that. Walking away from an angry superior might make him angrier, might even be disrespectful in some work context. Ordinarily, the best response is to remain calm. They brought it to an eight, you stay at a one. One author paraphrases this advice to read, let your cool composure quiet down a hot temper. Kipling 100 years ago, penned the words of an older man giving advice to a younger man. He writes, and I quote, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about yet not respond in lies, or being hated yet not give way to hating, you'll be a man, my son. End quote. This section is about responding wisely to people in authority who frankly aren't as wise as you are. In verses 5 and 6, you have authority figures putting unqualified people into high positions, which is not a surprise. Bad bosses usually promote bad people, and competent people usually put incompetent people in, in office. The foolish prevail above the wise. Fools put in high positions. Church, you need to understand. Sometimes, fools rule. Wisdom principle number four. 
Every day you must demonstrate wisdom while working your job. Every day you must demonstrate wisdom while working your job. Solomon lists four examples of people falling prey to the dangers involved in their jobs. OSHA wasn't created yet, so there's no yellow, yellow tape or hard hats or warning signs around the job. So Solomon, he's going to put up some. Uh, the first job is digging pits. Now, these were, these were animal trappers. They would dig a pit and camouflage it with leaves and, and ground cover. But there was a hazard. You could forget where you dug the pit, and instead of trapping a tiger, you trap yourself. I got a pastor friend in North Carolina who was preaching a gravesite. You know how they put that faux carpet over the grave. And he fell in the grave. Eric is his name. Uh, a, a year after he told me this, he texted me three words out of the blue. It read, it happened again. I knew exactly what he meant. He fell into the grave for the second time. I encouraged him to retire from funerals. But he, he pastors an older congregation, so he does about six a week. It's, it's, it's easy to fall into pits. The second job here is breaking down walls. In Israel, historically, there were low stone fences around vineyards and orchards. When the farmer wants to move a wall, he has to be careful because snakes will nest in the rocks. And if he's in a hurry and he's not careful, he could easily be bitten by the snake and die. The next is a, a stone cutter. And there's a hazard there. A rolling stone could roll onto you and break your leg or possibly kill you. The fourth is splitting logs. A dull axe could bounce off the wood and hit your leg. And then verse 10 is a, is a random elaboration on the need to sharpen your axe. Uh, the duller the axe, the harder you work. You have to swing harder to get the same result when your axe is not sharpened. So use your head. The more brains, the less muscle. Work smarter, not harder. Sharpen your axe. It takes, more it takes more time at the beginning, but it saves time in the long run. So be patient. Prepare for your job. This principle applies to education as well. Now the last is a snake charmer. Snake charmers were common entertainers in Solomon's day. You still see it in some parts of the world. Playing a, a flute and making a snake sway to the rhythm from its wicker basket. Snakes have no external ears, and they pick up sound waves primarily through the bony structure in their head. And evidently, the snake charmer in Solomon's illustration is in a hurry to gather his money before the snake is charmed, and, and he, he, takes, he takes a snake bite. Make sure the snake is charmed before you handle it. Let me, let me just illustrate this. Would you, would you bring the snakes? Just bring the snakes. I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not Pentecostal. We uh, know how to interpret the Bible. That was, that was uncalled for. All right. The, the, the point is, we must use wisdom in our daily tasks to avoid getting hurt. Wise people take into account the possible dangers in their jobs and they avoid them. If you are a therapist, make sure you have a proper distance between you and your clients. If you work on light poles, Check, make sure the electricity is off. If you're a parachuter, 
check your chute three times. If you're a sandwich artist at Subway, stop glorifying your job title. You're just slapping meat on bread. Wisdom principle number five. You must avoid listening to foolish people. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth will win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Solomon loves to divide humankind into two categories. The wise and the fool. Solomon will use terms like fool, foolish, or folly more than 100 times in his wisdom literature. In chapter 10, he uses these terms nine times. Now, you need to understand that the fool is not someone with below-average intelligence. It's not someone who dropped out of middle school. Folly does not show up on the low end of the IQ scale. A fool refers to someone prone to going in the wrong direction. You are a fool because of sin. Foolishness is living as if God doesn't exist. It is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Foolishness is giving no regard to God in your decisions. Foolishness is operating under your own rule instead of the rule of God. In scripture, fool is not a derogatory term. It's a descriptive term for someone who denies the creator God by his decision making. The verse says the lips of a fool consume him. Literally, the lips of a fool swallow him up. You could translate it, a fool falls into his own mouth. It's bad enough when we have to eat our, our words. It's even worse when our words eat us. It's a dramatic description of the danger of the unbridled tongue. It's self-destructive. Verse 14 talks about the verbosity of fools. Uh, fools are usually quite opinionated. They tend to be big talkers. They don't know when to shut up. Solomon highlights the fact that they love to speak with confidence about things they don't know. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. You don't want to listen to the advice of a fool. He's a bad counselor. If you follow his directions, you will regret it. He doesn't even know the way to town. Not knowing the way to town is an idiomatic expression for incompetence. We have similar colorful proverbs in, in our culture. Uh, he, he couldn't find his way out of an elevator. The verse is proverbial. He gets the simplest things wrong. Faith family, you need to guard who influences you and gives you counsel. Wisdom principle number six. You must exercise wisdom while living under foolish governments. Apparently, there have been fools in government since the beginning of time. <laughs> Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. These are leaders that have a lifestyle of pampered indulgence, champagne for breakfast. 
God actually promises a judgment on a nation in Isaiah chapter 3. And one of the judgments was, He will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. A notable example of this from history is Charles XII, who became king in Sweden when he was only a teenager, riding on horseback through his grandmother's apartment, knocking people to the ground in the city streets, practicing firearms by shooting out the windows of the palace. In response, the leading preachers of Stockholm all agreed to preach from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 16 on the same Sunday, pronouncing a woe on a land who had a child for a king and princes feasting in the morning. Any nation is in trouble when it's governed by people who are growing old but not growing up. And I don't care if he's governing from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the Moscow Kremlin in Russia, 10 Downing Street in London, or from the Blue House in South Korea. Unlucky the land whose king is a young pup and whose princes party all night. Lucky the land whose king is mature where the princes behave themselves. A nation's first need is a mature leader. Verse 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. Solomon first delivers a woe, but now he's delivering a beatitude. Blessed are you, O land, when you have dignified leaders, disciplined leaders. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, church. You need wisdom to navigate childish leaders and elected frat boys. Wisdom principle number seven. Wisdom will help you avoid being a sloth and to avoid living in fear of birds. I'm going to unpack that. Okay, don't worry. This, it's in there, I promise. Verse 18. Uh, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. In the Middle East, the, the flat roof required regular maintenance. The roofs were covered with lime and would eventually crack and water would seep through. You would have to apply a fresh coat of plastering from time to time. And if you were too lazy to do this, then the roof would eventually sag. The personal motto of the lazy is simply, maybe, maybe tomorrow. The roof is leaking. Well, I may get to it tomorrow. Don't be a Sid the sloth. Wisdom helps you to avoid certain catastrophes. Now notice verse 20. We'll get to the second half of this point here. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, again, the immediate readers of this text were living under a monarch. You badmouth a monarch, it gets back to him, you're probably going to die. Now, Solomon, of course, is using a metaphor. We have similar metaphors in our language. The walls have ears. A, a little birdie told me. Solomon is writing about the rapid dissemination of your careless talk. Careless talk can get you into deep trouble. 
And that's why you should speak with discretion and caution. <laughs> You're thinking, well, a little bird, I mean, a little bird can't do that much harm. Well, how about this one? Think of the reputations that have been ruined and the jobs lost and the lives changed because this little bird carried someone's thoughtless words to the internet world. Solomon's advice is simple. Don't say anything you really don't want inspected or repeated. One email, one text can do great damage. All wisdom writings deal with the tongue sooner or later. Presumably because speech is such a difficult area of sanctification for most of us. You must pepper your speech with wisdom. Now we began our study today by looking at a wisdom story and a wisdom poem. And you may be thinking, Kyle, I can't live up to the expectations of wisdom. There were a lot of musts in your exposition. You must learn to live wisely under foolish leadership. Every day you must demonstrate wisdom while working your job. You must avoid listening to foolish people. You must exercise wisdom while living under foolish governments. Kyle, I've, I've failed. I've failed to live a wise life. I've failed to act in wisdom in every circumstance. Well, friend, don't despair. There's good news for you. Your salvation doesn't rest on your always wise decisions. Your salvation rests on another. Here's what I have for you today. Not only a wise story and a wise poem, but a wise person. Ecclesiastes is one story that is part of of a larger story. It's one book among many books. You need all books to tell the whole story. And in the New Testament, we meet Jesus Christ. Jesus came to us, wisdom incarnate, wisdom clothed in flesh. Now, there were many wise men before him and many wise men after him. Buddha, Buddha was a wise man, he was a sage. If you were skilled in philosophy, you were considered a wise person. If you were a wise person and spoke about how to live life, you were a sage. And there were lots of sages throughout history. And in some ways, Jesus is just like all the other sages. He's just like every other wise man. He is presenting for you a wise way to live. But he is unlike any other wise man in that he is the only one who said, I will live that wise life for you. Other wise men say, do these wise things and you will live. Jesus says, I'm a different kind of wise man. Jesus is wisdom to us. What if wisdom wasn't a concept? or an idea, or a set of propositions you had to learn at all? What if wisdom was a person that you could know and have a relationship with? The gospel is not about mastering a lot of rules, but falling in love with wisdom, a person. Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. 
the one in whom all God's wisdom is hidden. Jesus is wisdom to us, but Jesus is also wisdom with us. Ecclesiastes should call us not simply to know the right things, but to know the right person, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't a pile of bone dust. He's a risen person, a risen king. John Mark McMillan's song says it so well. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but woke with the keys of hell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. In one way, Jesus' tomb isn't empty because he laid death in his grave. Skeptic to Christianity? Skeptic? What if God didn't send an airtight argument? What if he sent an airtight person? All of this wisdom is found in Christ. And I want you to understand that the ultimate folly is living a life that is not submitted to God. If you're going to become a Christian, it will only happen one way. By repenting of your folly but also repenting of your perceived wisdom. You need this wise man. He is the only person who has kept all seven wisdom principles perfectly. In our text today, you may have, it may have seemed like we were looking at a bunch of Old Testament morality. And you're going through saying something is missing. What was missing? It was Christ. The whole point of this is to show you that you're the fool. We are all fools having gone astray. And ultimately, there's only one wise man. So bank your eternity, not on the actions of a fool, but bank your eternity on the actions of a wise, the wise, the sage, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.